0: Audio Podcast Network. So have to, those who listen commonly know we're celebrating Pride Month, and I found this really amazing poem. Well, it's part of like a larger thing, but it's so it's part of a poem. And it says, No hell we dread when we are dead, no gorgon nor no fury, and while we live, we'll drink and fuck in spite of judge and jury like that's kind of a fantastic like i feel like that could almost be like a pirate drinking song it's like but while we live we drink and fucking yeah Um, (laughs) so it's by samuel shepherd the devil turned ranter and it's from 1651 shut up and so the full title and i looked it up because i was like what the fuck is that from and it's like the devil it's called like the jovial something and the devil turned ranter and it's like yeah like a whole thing and there ends up being like an orgy and then they all get arrested and i'm like yep nope this is 100 percent appropriate for pride dude 1600 right, I 1651 well because i first googled uh S- samuel shepherd and some guy that like murdered his pregnant wife came up and i'm like yeah i yeah exactly you know who i'm talking about and i'm like I don't think that's right. And then I looked back at it. Yeah. Then after at the bottom of the poem, it says, yeah, 1651. And I'm like, yeah, definitely not right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well,
1: well that's yeah. awesome. Well, welcome. Well, Oh, yeah. To
0: this podcast. Sorry. I, <laughs> was, I was just like, we're you're, done. You're just like staring at me. And I'm like, don't make me say um, it, Kelly. <laughs> welcome to Whining About History, where we drink wine and we talk about women from history you probably haven't heard of. But deaf should have. Deaf. Deaf. And we drink. Not so much the fucking on the podcast. I mean, not on the podcast. exactly. But you know what? That's
1: my business. And while we fuck live, you we're drinking
0: fuck in spite of judge and jury. I, just yeah. like, I love that. Which is
1: becoming more and more relevant with each passing day. God damn it. Right. Anyway.
0: Um, so we're still drinking uh, my mother-in-law's Moscato. Because it has a high ABV and we are trying to be very responsible adults right now. We are. I drank last night. I don't we even try. Drink. Yeah. Yeah. At least we both ate pizza before this. So we we're did. not doing this on empty stomachs. <laughs> I, We've I got done got my, that before. I got my
1: wine pizza and my diet coke. That's all I need mm. to sustain myself.
0: Emily's kicking us off today. I for, am This is our last episode of Pride Month. I
1: think yeah, so. It is time means nothing to me. And again, just quick disclaimer: this is not the only time of year that we cover LGBTQ plus women, but we are exclusively covering LGBTQ plus women this month. Yay! Yeah. So, just saying. Anyway, today I am whining about Jacqueline Chola Fresno. It's French, so I'm just going to say it like really went pretentiously. All right. Um, more commonly known as. Coccinelle. And I've been practicing that.
0: For a second, I thought you mispronounced Coco Chanel. And I'm like. Nope. Nope. M? Nope. Also, I'm pretty sure your notes would be longer than a page and a half if you were covering Coco Chanel. Yeah,
1: <laughs> just, just, just a smidgeny bit. So Jacqueline Cholot was born on August 23rd, 1931 in Paris, France. So already she's just like fabulous as fuck. Fuck yeah! And though she was assigned male at birth, Jacqueline knew that she was a girl from childhood. She recalled, quote, as a boy aged four, I knew I was different. I was a girl, really, but nobody could see it. So luckily for Jacqueline, her family was very supportive. So tell me again why old people are entitled to be shitty because they're from a different time. Not everyone from that time was shitty. This is a choice you're making and you continue to make it. All right. Anyway, uh, but her parents were cool. And as a child, Jacqueline took control of her gender expression by wearing dresses and wigs. Like from a very early age, she is dressing femininely and her family is supporting that, which is amazing. So I couldn't find a ton about her childhood, but Jacqueline enjoyed performing. Like I'm imagining she was one of those kids that always kind of need to be the center of the attention of attention. Um, And this came in handy because she made her debut in 1953 performing as a showgirl at Chez Madame Arthur, where her mother was work selling flowers. Also, I'm going to start calling my cat Arthur this. It's Chez Madame Arthur or Chez Madame Arthur. Chez Madame Arthur. Yeah. So when I'm like, oh, look at Chez Madame Arthur, look at him with the little face playing in the tub and being a squirrely little fuck. So because by French standards, Jacqueline Charlotte de Fresno was not a dramatic enough name. She performed as coccinelle, which is French for ladybug. So this was like like her. Yeah. Which I love. And it's worth noting. I I just want to point this out. It's worth noting that in Hebrew, the word can be a derogatory term for trans people or like effeminate men. I think it's I think it's pronounced a little differently I'm trying to I listened to like a bunch of French pronunciation so hopefully I'm getting that part of it right um but I want I think she's like taking it back too like I don't think that was a coincidence but also if you're like why is Emily keep saying this like really I'm not I'm not okay but I thought that was interesting yeah. So, she would go on to perform at Le Cuerce de Paris, a famous nightclub uh, where other fr- famous trans artists performed, because they weren't just a bit invented within the last 20 years. Trans people have been around for fucking ever, and they have been in public, so fuck off. She would go on to perform, oh, sorry, I already said that. So, during this time, when she's performing at Le Cuerce de Paris, uh... Gender affirmation surgery was still in its early days. And we've kind of touched on that in some of our, our stories in the past and kind of history behind gender affirmation surgery. And actually, um, it's interesting because a lot, several of the stories we've covered in the past where a trans woman does undergo gender affirmation surgery take place in the 50s because this is when it was like really becoming more widely available and known and that kind of thing. And so while every trans person is different and may or may not express themselves in a way that adheres to traditional gender expression or may or may not transition using hormones or surgery, Coxinelle wanted gender affirmation surgery as a part of her transition. Yeah. That was a part of her journey. It didn't doesn't make her more or less valid. However, anyone decides to present themselves or transition or not transition is a completely personal choice. This was hers. Because Coxinelle is always on brand, she went to Casablanca in Monaco. Of course. In 1958 to undergo a vaginoplasty procedure by Dr. Geor- Georges Georges Bureau. So Dr. Bureau was a French gynecologist who helped revolutionize gender affirmation surgery. And he operated out of Monaco. I'm not sure if this was because he wasn't, like, allowed to do the procedures in France, Or if it was easier and like, I don't know, but I thought it was interesting. Like he's a French doctor performing this on a French woman, but they both are in Monaco to do. So I didn't know if there was something going on like that, but I just, I love, I'm like, she's this very, like, she's this very glamorous blonde bombshell of a woman with a very glamorous name. And she's going to Casablanca Monaco for, I'm like, oh my God. So It's like,
0: oh, I got prescribed to go to the South of France. Like it's, it's very
1: glamorous. It's very, I love, I love every part of this. So Coxie procedure was successful. And she recalled, quote, Dr. Barreau rectified the mistake nature had made. And I became a real woman on the inside as well as the outside. After the operation, the doctor just said, Bonjour, mademoiselle. And I knew it had big success. I'm going to cry. I love that. Can you imagine? I love that doctor. How cool is that? What a sweet thing. I feel like that needs to be mandatory now. Like, if someone undergoes gender affirmation surgery transitioning from male to female, like, it should be like, check said, bonjour, mademoiselle. Everyone cried, check, you know? I thought that was really sweet. So upon returning to France, Coxinelle became a sensation and a sex symbol. And normally we don't dwell on the appearances of the women we cover, but I think it's kind of important to for painting the picture of who Coxie Nell was. Yeah. Because she was this blonde bombshell with pouty lips and like she was like Marilyn Monroe but sexier.
0: Cuz like well yeah, she's French. Well, Marilyn I'm sorry. I'm not saying the Mar- French are very sexy. Yes.
1: I'm not saying Marilyn Monroe wasn't sexy because she she obviously she was. was, but I felt like Marilyn Monroe had almost like more of an innocent quality. Coixinel was just like I am your fantasy, like, pot. yeah, 100%. yeah, she was, yeah, a little sex pun to come. It was amazing. So, this may have been one of the reasons that there was such an interest in Coxinelle, uh, as historian Joanne Meyerowitz, Meyerowitz, excuse me, as they write quote, the more sexualized MTF or male to female showed up in the sensationalized press in the stories on Coxinelle who worked at Le Carousel and Petty. So this almost also kind of made me think of Christine Jorgensen, who Kelly U covered all the way back mm-hmm. in episode fifteen. Yeah,
0: that was a long time
1: ago. Oh my God. Now every time we're like talking about an episode in the double digits, I'm like, that was so long ago. But she was a very like traditionally feminine, sexy blonde woman too and I think the transition from traditionally masculine to traditionally feminine really fascinated people in a way that's still centered on their traditional views of gender like I I was thinking about this because it was like oh my god she's like so womanly which makes it even more mind-blowing that she was assigned male at birth, you know, that kind of thing. But also it reinforces the idea of the time of the binary. Like you you either had to be masculine or feminine. Right. Because kind of like I talked about before, you know, not everyone adheres to, tra- to traditional gender appearances and performance and all of that. But at this time, like you, you almost had to. Like if you were going to go through this, and I think that was part of the the fascination because it still played into the gender binary that society needed, but it was also like whoa and very different. Right? And, yeah. yeah.
0: No, I think it's really cool.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I'm, thought,
0: I'm still stuck on that doctor just like Bonjour it, man, Yeah, exactly. Not being like, hey, we did it. Just like, oh my god, that's like that's yeah, such like, a great way to well, do your it.
1: Procedure was a six, Like I don't know. That's just so sweet. So uh, Coxinelle began appearing in movies, including the thriller Los Viciosos*, which really like launched her into the stratosphere of stardom. And this made her the first French trans woman to become a major movie star. An Italian singer wrote a song about her that was titled, you know, Coxinelle. And it was like really controversial. Like like, people were like, oh, my God, which I'm like, yeah, like, I don't know. Fucking A. But I thought that was cool because someone like did it anyway. She also performed and recorded music, including a song called Take Me or Leave Me, which I love. I saw that title. And I'm like, this is her anthem. <laughs> and beyond being a performer and a sex symbol, Coxie Nell was an activist founding the To Become Woman organization to support others wanting gender affirmation surgery. She created the Center for Aid, Research, mm-hmm. and Information for Transsexuality and Gender Identity. And in her personal life, she got married and I I had a hard time like finding who she got married to. I think it was a man because the the implication of this marriage is that it was the first union to become recognized by the French government of like a trans person marrying someone, which set the precedent for transgender people to marry, period, which was a big deal. So, she wrote and published her autobiography, Coccinelle, in 1987. And she lived loud and proud all the way into the early aughts. Wow. Yes. Yes. So, in July of 2006, she suffered a stroke and was hospitalized. And then on October 6th of that year, she died from complications of the stroke. And... But Cox, you know, she she leaves this legacy because she's this, and like I said, there's not one way to be trans or to be a woman or to express your gender identity. But as an early trans trailblazer and this very like blonde bombshell sex symbol, yeah, you know, I think she, especially for the time, this like being in the 50s, she really helped. To not only put trans trans people into the spotlight, but also I, I feel like she almost worked to popularize them in a way or, you know, like, yeah, in, improve, increase that acceptance because well, people love. I mean, she she was a movie star. People are writing songs about her. She's recording her own music like it was almost like the fact that she was trans was a bit secondary to her stardom. Like maybe that was a bit of a. um. Oh, God, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Novelty to people where they're like, oh, whoa. But then they just were really enraptured by who she was and what she was doing. And for her to be doing this in the 50s is huge. And every time someone is able to live honestly as themselves, it just gets a little easier for everyone else down the line. Right. And she would not be put into a fucking box and she would not leave the spotlight she would not be sequestered to the edges and the margin she's like I'm here and you're you're all gonna pay attention to me right and I I don't know I just I think that's really wonderful and too. especially you know yeah she's she dude you gotta look at pictures of her it's like her costumes her out like it's wild I would have loved to see her perform it's it's amazing I oh my god you know why I would have loved to see because Josephine Baker also has really amazing costumes. Like these two performing together would have been peak everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the story of. And I hope I did that name justice. I like your little
0: French accent. <laughs> Cute. I,
1: I really tried. It was funny because most of the French in here was actually stuff that I could handle. So I felt very. Pr- I was like, Oh, the cat said, you know, de Paris. Like, let me put my pinky up and twirl my mustache. <laughs> Let me smoke my cigarette and wear my beret. Everyone who's French is just like, I've offended. Just shutting off I, I have offended an entire country. That being said, if they haven't been offended by now, they have not That's been paying true. attention. <laughs> so.
0: You know, it's bad when I'm like, my favorite French word is guillotine because yep. I know how to say it. Yep. Among other reasons.
1: Bonjour, mademoiselle. Yeah, that's cute. (laughs) All
0: right. So, Kelly, who are you covering? I am covering Alice Moore Dunbar Nelson. So, you know what's funny? That's a name.
1: I think you had texted me asking if you had Mm -hmm. covered her, and I said no. And then when I was looking for someone to cover, I saw that name, and I was like, ooh, she sounds interesting. Why does that name sound familiar? Oh, No. Do not do this. Don't cover the same woman Kelly no. is covering. We can't be doing this. That's why I
0: asked. We don't we don't have
1: backup notes.
0: <laughs> um, so Alice was born Alice Ruth Moore, um, in New Orleans, July nineteenth, eighteen seventy-five. So we're going back a ways. Okay. She was the daughter of formerly enslaved African uh, formerly enslaved African American seamstress and a white seaman. Not joking. He was like, I, I guess they never, it didn't go into like what he did. They just called him a seaman. Wait, like the letter C or like
1: no, a like man S-E-A-M-A-N, of the ocean?
0: S E A M A N. Oh, okay. C-A-N, literally. And I'm, I'm nervously enunciating C. Yep. So it doesn't sound like, you know. Yeah. Anyways. So her parents. Seaman. Seaman. Say it. Seaman. 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 Seaman.
1: I love her drawing. Seaman. the Seaman. I love her like drawing the line like, oh, Seaman. I want to say
0: it like so it sounds like and then we're just you yelling it. Yeah. Uh, anyway. So her parents names were Pat- Patricia Wright and Joseph Moore. They were they were fairly middle class family um, and part of the city, the city's multiracial Creole community. So, this is where she's coming from. Nice. And at a young age, Alice became very interested in activities that would empower black women. So just kind of <laughs> let yeah. you know where we're headed. Anyways, Alice would graduate from a teaching program at Straight University. They did uh, it has been since renamed to Dillard University. <laughs> But I was like, mm. I'm, I'm, I
1: just, because it's pride month yep. and it's like the woman you're covering went to straight university. Oh, yeah, Trust me. I know I
0: giggled too. So that was in 18. 18- not a choice guys. You can't train someone to be straight right. or gay. Um, so like I said, it was a teaching program. It's in the, you know, the late 18, early 1890s. Mm-hmm not uncommon for like that's one of the only jobs women were having at that time. So she would go on to work as a teacher in pu- the public school systems of New Orleans. Um and would live in New Orleans New Orleans for 21 years. Um studying art, music, teaching. She learned to play the piano and the cello. She would become a, a charter member of the Phyllis Wheatley Club of New Orleans. <gasps> Yep, We talked
1: about her a little bit because Barbara Jordan went to the Phyllis Wheatley School because exactly. she's a famous black
0: poet. Exactly. And, and, you know and yeah, this is where Alice really started contributing writing to mm-hmm. the world. Um, and to expand their horizons, the Wheatley Club was uh, collaborating with another group called the Women's Era Club. So um, Alice kind of ended up working for both of them. And the Women's Era Club would publish a monthly newspaper called the Women's Era um, and this would target ref- the upper class, refined and educated women. It was the first newspaper for and created by African American women. Love it. So it was. It wasn't for upper class like white women. It was. Yeah. For, it was for educated black women. Yes.
1: Which is great. Like, I can't. No, I was just gonna say. I'm like, 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 just put that into perspective. You said this is the 1890s? Uh, 1894-ish. Yeah, so late 1890, mid-late, late late 1800s. And it's like, and the first magazine published for educated black women. right? Like, just put that into perspective, you know, about how much the transatlantic slave trade really fucked people up, you know, and their opportunities. And like, it's like, here's the starting line. And then it's like, no, you go all the way back there. That's your starting line. Right. But we're all the running the same race. We're not. We're not. We're fucking not. I wish we were, but we're not.
0: Um, so this is really where Alice's work in journalism and as an activist would begin. Um, following her work on the newspaper, Alice would publish her first collection of short stories and poems. It was called Violets and Other Tales, which I like. I do too. Um, and then at this time, she also would move from New Orleans to Boston, and then from Boston to New York City. So she like moved around a lot, but she, big cities. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, she would then co-found and and teach at the White Rose Mission or the White Rose Home for Girls um, in Manhattan. So Good she's deal. she's getting shit done. Um, and she at during this time, she would also begin a correspondence with poet and journalist Paul Lawrence Dunbar. That sounds
1: familiar. Hmm. Hmm.
0: So Alice's work um, had in the original magazine, the Women's Era magazine, had captured Paul's attention. And so th- he sent her a letter. So he initiated the correspondence, sent her a letter of introduction, and they would that was the first of many that they would go back and forth in their letters Paul would talk to Alice about her interest in the ra- what they would call at the time the race question which oh I'm like, my oh, god I hate that yeah um, well th-
1: oh, wasn't there wasn't there another one it was like the gender question yeah. the yeah the, the sex
0: question like there they all exist
1: yeah and it, it it's they're all he, equally here's stupid. the thing. There's never like a real question. It's always like, oh, well, this is complicated. No, it's not.
0: It's one tiny group of people that get their panties in a bunch and they just happen to have money and they all just need to be punched in the face. Can I just
1: say the answer to every one of those questions is
0: don't be a dick. Yeah. So they would, like I said, they were corresponding back and forth and Alice's response to Paul, like, asking her about her interest in this, Alice responded that she thought of her characters simply as human beings and believed that many writers focused on race too closely. I get that. You know. And he... um, her, her later, you know, as shit was happening in the country, her, like, later writing is a lot more race-focused, and I'll yeah. talk about that more later. Um, and would kind of... Dis- you know, she would kind of, kind of go back on what she said a little bit. I, I think both of those things can exist together. Though. Exactly, they're you not know, mutually exclusive. Exactly.
1: It's called, yeah. It, it, Reese can be a part of who you are, but it doesn't have to be right. all you are. And there is a proper way to write what we might call a diverse character. Who, at right. the end of the day, is just a fucking character. Like they're just a person. Exactly. You know
0: what I mean? Like Allison. They're simple human beings. Exactly. Um, So Alice and Paul had very differing um, views on the race problem. Unsexy finger. I just don't like that word. Um, But despite these uh, contradictory opinions um, uh, about the representation of race in literature, the two would continue to communicate and it would become romantic Mm -hmm. through their letters. Um, Can I
1: say that? That's kind of hot that they're like,
0: Having original sexting, but not really. They're they're having like a philosophical discussion.
1: Yeah, they're having this, you know, kind of. Yeah, yeah, they're having they're having this intellectual discussion via letters, and then it just turns into like, "Oh, excellent point there, madam. I see what you're. I see what you mean. It's like, oh, sir, it's so good of you to recognize it's my intellect. Like, like
0: intellectual foreplay. Yeah, and it's, like you're right. It I is love fantastic. That. I
1: love. They're like coming together over having don't, this. Don't like him too
0: much. Oh, fuck. Yeah, he goes downhill real quick. God damn it. I'm sorry, <laughs> um, but like. Their correspondence would reveal both of their tensions about sexual freedoms of men and women. Um, in one of his letters, Paul told Alice that she was keeping him from yielding to temptations, which is obviously like a, a clear reference to him just like going out and having sex with people. Yeah. Um, although it, it it is known that Alice at the time was seeing some women. Okay. So she, she's a bisexual. Um. And it's interesting because in some of his letters, he would try to like make her jealous, and he would be like, "Oh, I met this woman, blah blah blah," and she would basically be like, "All right, whatever." Like she would, she would kind of maintain an emotional distance because she's like, you know, if you're gonna do that, like you're being dumb.
1: He's kind of being a little fuck boy, exactly.
0: Like I and it, it, and, and that's manipulative. That's like, exactly what it is. It, that's shitty. He's like, I want you to be jealous. Fuck um, you. After corresponding for several years, Alice would end up moving to Washington, D.C. to join Paul and they would elope in 1898. That's where we're at right in 1898. I know. She needed needed some friends to be like, honey, no. Fuck him. (laughs) Uh, Their marriage proved rocky. uh, (laughs) To say that's an understatement. (laughs) This was exacerbated by Paul's declining health due to him having tuberculosis. I thought you were going to say syphilis. Oh, God, that would have been so much better. (laughs) Um, But then he also developed alcoholism because the doctor prescribed whiskey consumption for the tuberculosis. Just drink bleach. That That was a thing. And depression, (laughs) because, I mean, if you're that sick and... An alcoholic, yeah, you're probably depressed.
1: Yeah, you're you're dying of an illness, and then chugging a depressant to cure
0: that illness. You're gonna be sad, right? It's a sad time. Um, slight trigger warning, so skip ahead like a minute. Um, so before their marriage, like when they met, um, Paul actually raped Alice. <gasps> oh my god! Um, and he would like in later conversations, he would blame it on his alcoholism because, of course, fuck you, um, Alice would. I mean, they still got married, Alice would end up giving forgiving him, however, he became a horrible wife beater oh, and it was public God. knowledge. This was not something that he did it, and it was hidden. like people yeah. knew what was going on um and in a in a message that Alice sent to one of um her, bi- her biographers, like, later in life. She said, quote, He came home one night in beastly condition. I went to him to help him to bed, and he behaved, as your informant said, disgracefully. She also claimed that one time she was ill for weeks with peritonitis brought on by his kicks, meaning, like, he was kicking her so hard in the stomach that she actually, like, had internal rupturing. Oh, my God. In 1902, um, he beat her nearly to death, and she finally left him um oh there, my there was God. also reports that he had found out about some of like her lesbian affairs the ones that she was having like before they got married yeah um and that like apparently disturbed him so people are like well that was part of it it's i'm like, sorry i'm sorry that doesn't deserve no one deserves to be beaten because here's the of thing that. i'm sorry you rapist abusive yeah, like, asshole you're a piece of shit you don't blame don't get her to be
1: disturbed yeah, exactly. you are the disturbing one you your can, behavior is what's disturbing. you are disturbed god um so, um, so as, as someone the, the pair oh yeah
0: the pair separated in 1902 however their divorce was never finalized and he died for four years later good readings yeah, to no bad rubbish. Um, she would then, uh, when she left him, she moved to Wilmington, Delaware. Cause, sure. I mean, that's like is what they were in New York. So the, yeah, it's like on the same coast, yeah. I guess. Um, and taught at Hayward High School uh, for more than a decade. So basically like she moved, she said like she didn't settle down, but she was like, you know, I'm just going to try and have a quiet life. She's
1: having her fresh start. Right. You do you,
0: Alice. And during this, the, during this time, because she just really loved teaching, she would also teach summer sessions at the State College for Colored Students, um, which would later become the Delaware State University. Um, and at the Hampton Institute, she would take a leave of absence um, later to uh, enroll in Cornell University, re- <gasps> uh, returning a year later. It, I couldn't really find like why she went to Cornell. I would assume maybe she went and took some like writing classes or something. But yeah, she was only gone a year and then came back. Maybe so that's she, all she could get for a she leave. She might be the second
1: most famous student from Cornell. Possibly. Next to Andy Bernard. From the office. He oh also God. went to Cornell. I was like, who the
0: <laughs> fuck is that? <laughs> the um, nard dog! <laughs> uh, in 1910, she would marry for a second time to a man named Henry Callis. Uh, he was a physician and a professor at the same university. There really wasn't much about this marriage. They, got, they ended up getting divorced, but it, I couldn't find anything that he was a piece of shit. He may have been
1: just a smidge bit too... Callous. I know. I was like, mm. they're the names. In I was kind of, I was kind of
0: hoping that one was going to work out just because the name, <laughs> right. Um, while she continued to write stories and poetry during this entire time, she also started to become more politically active in Wilmington um, and put a lot of her journalism efforts into those topics. She would go on to co-found the equal suffrage study club and was a field organizer for the middle Atlantic States, um, of the For the women's suffrage movement. So she was like one of the big organizers in that area, which is great.
1: Well, and it's really important because as we talked about before, women's suffrage was racist. Right. Yeah. Like the, the women's suffrage movement was not this, you right. know, rainbow like we know coalition where, we know of where it women's rights. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which is unfortunate. Um, she would marry another um, man. So even though she was bisexual, and I'll talk a little bit more about some of her other liaisons, she only ever married men, which is... Not uncommon for the, you know, 1915, 1916. I was going to say, legally, she could only yeah, marry Exactly. <laughs> so she would marry um, another poet and another civil rights activist named Robert J. Nelson. Um, they worked together to publish the play Masterpieces of Negro Experience, um, which was only ever shown once at Howard High School in Wilmington. And I'm like, someone needs to find this and bring it back because it sounds like it could be really interesting. Like Some,
1: some parent with a shaky hand. Right. Like, camcording it in the in background 1914? and like zooming in only on their, their kid child,
0: yeah. we need that recording um <laughs> so they would join together and be, be basically this like little power team of local and regional like activism which were they great. a power couple they were and I they, they would stay together for the rest of their lives during this time i think probably previously to when she was married but i couldn't find like a timeline. But she also was seeing um, two women around this rough time frame. Mm -hmm. Um, There's chances she was seeing more, but they 100% were able to uncover that she was seeing Howard High School principal, Edwina Cruz. Great name. And another activist named Faye Jackson Robinson. Love it. And it's unknown, like, if her husband knew and was okay with it, or if this, yeah, was before they got married, like... The time frames I couldn't really find. Yeah. Honestly, like, a lot of the stuff I found didn't even, like, mention that she was bisexual and had liaisons with women, which is fairly common.
1: Which is one of the reasons we're covering these people and these stories.
0: Wikipedia was the first place I saw it. And then, of course, like, I went and checked Wikipedia sources. Yeah.
1: (laughs) As I do. So, uh, just sorry, really quick. So, we were talking about how she only married men. Mm -hmm. And we're like, well... literally only could marry yeah. men, and then I was thinking it may have depended on the state and I don't know if all of her husbands were black but I'm like there were places where she could only marry black men specifically Part of me
0: wondered I know I haven't looked at any of like the pictures but I'm like I wonder if her first husband was white and no that's why no one cared that he was beating her
1: I mean also him being a man, beating know, his wife, like, that's you know what but I yeah, mean. Yeah, then there's the additional level of privilege there.
0: So during this time frame, the early nineteen hundreds, um, she was co-editor and writer for the AME Review, which was an influential church publication by the African Methodist Episcopal Church or AME. Mm-hmm. Um She would co-edit the Wilmington Advocate, which was a progressive black newspaper in her town. And she also published the Dunbar Speaker and Entertainer, which was a literary anthology for black audiences.
1: She kept the last name Dunbar
0: it's hyphenated okay so it's at, she kept all three of well no she didn't keep callus at all but because her her birth name her birth last name was more her maiden okay. name was more yeah and then she married dunbar and then she married nelson so so it's more Dunbar, Nelson, and then dunbar
1: nelson okay. is hyphenated okay i i like didn't quite put that together i couldn't remember yeah.
0: her whole magnificent name right Um, she would then become a field representative for the Women's Committee of the Council of Defense. This is coming into 1918. Okay. World War One. Yeah. (laughs) No, I know. I was like, Well, it's already going on. It's just ending now. Yeah. Yeah. But like, that's why it's kind of the Defense Council, because toward the end of World War One, like, people were weird and worried that it was going to come to America. And I'm like, why? Like, yeah, by 1918, it's wrapping up. Like... I mean, honestly, at that point, it's like, oh, the world—the whole world is at war. Whoever thought that yeah, this would exactly. happen,
1: I would also just be like, I don't know what's happening anymore. Yeah, or and Alice could. was
0: 100% on the side of America's involvement mm-hmm. in um, World War One, and she actually saw, like, this war as a means to ending racial violence in America. She's like, look, we're all banding together for yeah. the same cause. Look, we can all be on the same side, guys, like... Um, and so she would organize events to encourage other African-Americans to support the war and the war effort and, like, stuff like that. And she would she would later reference the war in a number of her works. Obviously, it's one of those things that you see things going on in the world affecting people's writing. Yeah, how no. How can it not? Yeah, it's literally the world is at war. Um, in her poem written in 1918, it's called, I Sit and Sew." Uh, she writes from the perspective of a woman who feels suppressed from engaging directly with the war effort, and she writes about this mainly because Alice or the woman was uh, not able to enlist in the war herself, obviously, or no, sorry, Alice was not able to enlist in the war herself again, obviously. Yeah. So she would kind of write whatever she could. She wrote a lot of, like I said, pro pro war propaganda mm-hmm. um such as pieces called Mine Eyes Have Seen, which was a play that encouraged African American men to enlist mm-hmm. in the army. Um, and a lot of these works uh display Alice's belief that racial equality could could be achieved through military service and sacrifice like showing them, hey, we're a part of this yeah. nation and we're willing to sacrifice ourselves for it. Like this is
1: our country. Exactly. This very our, you know, all of ours and Right, you know, it, it makes me think of The Watchmen, the movie, yeah. and how the the whole point at the end is like to give the world a common enemy to ban against. Yeah, and I used to think like, oh wow, that's so that's so interesting, and now I'm just like, that's bullshit. That is not how this works. <laughs> it's not how people it's one of those work. That
0: it works for a little while,
1: like ten seconds.
0: It works for a little while, but then people like fight about little things about that common enemy
1: well and then just it it makes me think back to september 11th like around september 11th i always see these um memes where it's like if only we could all act like we did the day after september 11th i'm like the day after september 11th some people murdered us like a man wearing a turban yeah in a racially charged attack there
0: was yeah do not not fucking tell me we were all like kumbaya and coming together over that no yeah I mean, like most people were, but it was, again, the way we came together wasn't like healthy because it wasn't like, oh my God, we as a like world need to not do this. It was we as America need to be on the offensive and like you know yeah there was a lot of people that are like we need to kick these people out of our country blah, blah, blah. and i'm like no they, that is not the point yeah there was
1: a lot of like racism xenophobia that came from that which i mean it's just is, like pearl harbor it's very upsetting god like
0: why do we keep doing this History
1: again repeats and
0: again itself. and again so Uh, In 1920, uh, Alice decided she was going to kind of commit mainly to journalism. She was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm going to like stop writing books for a little bit. This is my jam. Yep. So she became a very highly successful columnist. She would write articles. This was back when newspapers published essays. So she got a few Mm -hmm. of those. Reviews on like different things going on in the community and she wouldn't just write, like, she wasn't writing just for one newspaper. She was writing for a newspaper, but she would also submit things to magazines and academic journals as well. She was also a popular speaker during this time and had a very active, like, lecture schedule during these years. Um, So f- I will say she did have a little bit of a rocky start because during the late 19th century, it was still unusual for women to be working outside the home. Mm-hmm. And then she's an African-American woman. Yeah. So, of course, that compounds and it's even harder. And back then, journalism was a male-dominated field that was known to be hostile. Yes. Like, it was bad. It
1: wasn't just no girls allowed. It's we will chuck you out of our treehouse. Exactly. It was so with bad. With extreme prejudice.
0: And so she re- one of her diary entries talks about being even, not not in the profession, but being like, associated with it even and she wrote quote damn bad luck i have with my pen some fate has decreed i shall never make money by it Aww. she discusses being denied pay for her articles and issues she had receiving proper recognition for her work um she was actually removed from teaching at the at Hayward High School because she attended social justice day um against like her principal's like, orders or- yeah and yeah. so she like whatever. So yeah, he removed her for being pol- uh for her political activity and its incompatibility with the school. Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ, right. Um even though the board of education like the head of the board of education um didn't want her fired. Jesus Christ. Yeah. But um so they kind of were like, "Come back, we'll let you come back like and she was like, no i'm not I'm not gonna come back and she instead she became the executive secretary of the American Friends interracial Peace Committee. Jeez, that's a name. I love her, um, which is great. And she would go on to speak some of like the she spoke at the American Negro Labor Congress Forum in Philadelphia, and her topic in particular was interracial peace and its relation to labor. Mm -hmm. so i thought that was interesting dig it um so in 1924 lynching was still a big problem which is a real sad and so alice started really campaigning hard for the passage of a bill called the dire anti-lynching bill um however it was not passed because the southern democrats were assholes I, I, it just,
1: it blows my mind. It's like, oh yeah, we're all on the same page. Murder is not okay. Unless it's this brand of murder. Right. So then we need to pass another law that says this brand of murder is not okay. But what if it's for this reason? Then we right. have to pass another law. Say so you can't do yeah. this specific murder for this. Like, Oh,
0: my God. So it got blocked in Congress and did not pass. Um, And so she started really kind of trying to find other ways to foster political change. And there was a quote that said, quote, she stayed very active in the NAACP. She co-founded a much needed reform school in Delaware for African-American girls. She worked for the American Friends Interracial Peace Committee, and she spoke at rallies against the sentencing of the Scottsboro defendants. Her LinkedIn page is just massive and incredibly impressive. So in 1930, she would travel throughout the country lecturing again. She would cover th- thousands of miles, present in 37 different schools, not to mention other places. Mm-hmm. She would also, uh, a lot of the places she would speak at are the uh, YWCAs, the YMCAs, and churches. Um, and... Her a lot of these achievements and these visits were documented by Friends Service Committee newsletters. Love it, yeah. So she would move from Delaware to uh, we were talking about that. Uh, Delaware, no, she would move from Delaware to Philadelphia with her husband, obviously, where it's always sunny, right? And her husband would join the Pennsylvania Athletic Commission. Uh, unfortunately, during this time, her health would start to decline and she would die from a heart ailment on September 18th, 1935. At oh, the shit. Age of 60. Uh, she would be cremated in Philadelphia, and after her death, she was made an honorary member of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority. Um, you can see copies of her a lot of her original papers at the University of Delaware, and her diary was later published in 1984, detailing her life from 1921, ah, uh, 1921, and then 1926 to 1931, um, which apparently was really nice because it it proved a lot it. Like, provided a lot of insight into the lives of black women during this time, Mm -hmm. which is something we don't always have. Yeah. And it, quote, summarizes her position in an era during which law and custom limited access, expectations, and opportunities for black women. What I like about that line is it's limited access, expectations. Yes. Like, and then this also gave a lot of people a look into, like, her family and friendship and her sexuality. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, health professional, you know, like all these things that you don't see when you're looking at a writer, like you see their works, but you don't necessarily like, know who right. they are. so I'm going to talk a little bit more about her work. Um, and like what she wrote about specifically. I'm actually glad
1: because I felt like it's like, Oh, and then she moved out and then she died. Like, no, that I mean, came she out was, of nowhere. She was only 60.
0: So she did die pretty young.
1: I mean, maybe for the time it wasn't as bad, but it just seemed to come completely out of nowhere. Right.
0: I just figured having like her writing in one big block at the end is just going to make more sense. Yes. (laughs) So um, Alice wrote a lot about um, subject, purpose, audience and occasion. Like she liked kind of like fitting things in. So her work, as she put it, quote, addressed the issues that confronted African-Americans and women of her time. That's how she put it. So some of the essays she wrote were called Negro Women in War Work, Politics in Delaware, Hysteria. Is it time for Negro, Negro colleges in the South to be put in the hands of Negro teachers? <laughs> so in all of these books, she explored the role of black women in the workforce and education and and the anti-lynching movement. Um, a lot of the examples within her book demonstrated the social activist role and how like it played a part in her life and kind of, like spilled over into her books mm-hmm. um, and all of these also not only these works, but all of these, all of her writing, you can feel her expressing her belief um, that races and men and women should be equal. Yeah. Like that was kind of like her, one of her core things. She believed that African-Americans should have equal access to everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, what a novel concept. Right. And you can see her um, feminism and like racial activism really start like in her really early works like that. The what did I say? Violets and more like you don't see it as much. But starting in like the nineteen hundreds, you can really see it start coming out. Um, And that's also when she started like public publicly, you know, participating in the suffrage movements and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So, again, it's, you know. Their art follows their life. Yeah. By the way, the first time you said violets and more,
1: I was I heard it as violence and more. I that's was like, oh, that's going to be my autobiography. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, a lot of her uh, writing also talked about like the color line, you know, like between blacks and whites. Okay. Um, and she would kind of talk about both sides of it. Because you know she technically both perspectives. She and was technically black and white. Yeah, she's mixed race. Exactly, which um, which
1: comes with its own uh, potential challenges during this time. Oh yeah, because you're. I mean, it really depends on what you looked like, to be honest. Well, you you can be perceived as too white or like not or, black yeah. enough, or you're not white enough. Exactly, or yeah. you're just not white.
0: Yeah. yeah. So in one of her autobiographical pieces called Brass. Brass ankles speak. She discusses the difficulties she faced growing up mixed race in Louisiana. She recalls, yeah, the isolation and the the sense of not belonging to either race. and that you see that a lot if, in this time frame. Um I'm not even gonna say that because it, it has the n word. and oh. I didn't realize that but It was a, she got called racist names, yeah, um, by white adults. Uh, or no, she said by children and she said adults were actually not as vicious with their name calling, but they also weren't accepting of her.
1: Well, where do you think the kids are getting it exactly. from? The adults are like, they're saying it oh, at home. Well, I'm not going to like directly lobby right. it at you, but I'm going to say it where my children hear it. And then they're just going to shout it right. for me.
0: She said both black and white individuals rejected her for being too white. White coworkers did not think she was racial enough. And black coworkers did not think she was dark enough to work with her own people. She wrote that being multiracial was hard. Um,. And she said, "The brass ankles must bear the hatred of their own and the prejudice of the white race."
1: Jesus Christ! Yeah. So well, we we were just talking you get about the hate. That. For yeah. Both. Exactly. That sucks. That sucks so bad. Especially because just kind of the way that our society is becoming increasingly integrated, mm-hmm. multiracial people are going to become like more of a norm. Yeah. You know, like there, it's not. It's not uncommon to meet someone who's has multi there, like, a multi ethnic background. There is
0: going to be a point where all of us are not, like everyone on the planet is multi ethnic. Yeah, it's it's going to happen eventually. Bring it on. Um, so a lot of her writing got rejected because she did write about this the color line oppression themes of racism, sexism, all of that. Um, so there. There are quite a few of her... I mean, I think they've been published since then, you know? Yeah. But during the time, they weren't published. And so, like, you know, they didn't appear... Like, they had the original papers and stuff that she wrote on them, but they, weren't, they never appeared mainstream to anyone i'm hearing the um, same like angry yells of like
1: yeah. oh why why exactly. you gotta make it about race and gen-. it's like because yeah.
0: and so it wasn't you didn't want to talk
1: about it back then so now we got to talk about it now right. and
0: so mainstream mainstream publications you know were like you're you're not marketable which means you're too radical and yeah. we're not gonna put you in our newspaper equality um That's nuts she but some of her um like the work that was published was, you know, yeah, the ones where the themes of racism and oppression and sexism were more subtle. She still put it in there,
1: yeah, but she she kind of like took a more delicate right. hand. She's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna
0: just massage this in there. So yeah, that was Alice uh, Dunbar Nelson. She spent a lot of her time writing first first writing about it and then speaking you know it, it that's kind of sounds like what she ultimately ended up doing is just going and speaking at all of these places
1: that's awesome yeah i love that she did the damn thing
0: yeah and she was bisexual when yep. you met. you go alice i'm just glad she found someone that wasn't a piece of shit in the end i know god that guy was an asshole.
1: That just ah, oh, that's just that's so upsetting. I know that's so upsetting. I was upsetting. like,
0: oh, like, cause I agreed with you when I when I was first reading her story. I'm like, oh, it's so nice that you like met someone through this intellectual discussion in your letters, and like then you met in person and got married. And I'm like, and he's a piece of shit. Yep. Great. Yep. God damn. Well, on that lovely note, what are you thankful for?
1: What am I thankful for? Oh, shit, I had something. I had something, and it left me the second that I needed to recall it. Hmm. Bum, 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 ba ba-dum, ba-dum. Okay, well, I'm just going to uh, tell a cute story. So I was at Walgreens looking for Father's Day card. I was shocked at how tiny the selection of Father's Day cards were, considering it's Sunday. <laughs> like, As of this recording, it's in you know less than a week, and at the time of me looking at it, looking for a card it was less than a week and I can't really find anything and then this woman comes over with her her two young sons they're maybe like seven eight nine like in that range yeah and one of the boys just he he plucks this card that I didn't even see and it's a Jurassic Park themed Father's Day card and it took all of my adulting not to just be like oh my god so he looks at it for a minute and then puts it back and I just kind of like Oh, subtly, I'm like. Gonna. But I, you know, I was like, "Thank you so much for finding this card." I can't, be- I love dress. I can't believe I didn't see this. And You got this figure and He's like, "You're welcome." Oh, that's adorable. And their mom was like, "Oh, we're gonna see that movie this weekend." And I was like, "It's so good." And so her and I started chatting about it, and like our experiences watching it. And that, and she's like, "Do you do you think kids can sit through it?" I was like, "Well, I didn't take kids with me, but I watched that movie like I was a kid." And I was just feeling it with every part of my being. So, but it was a, it was a nice interaction and it was kind of a nice, I don't know. I feel like most of my stories of like, I ran into someone at the grocery store and in a public place and with, and then they tried to follow me or they said something nasty or they were, they sucked, but it was just, you know, that kid found my dad's Father Day Father's Day card. I had a nice chat with the with the mom That's about cute. Jurassic Park and Jurassic World and the dinosaurs and all that stuff. And it was just it was a really nice interaction, and I was really happy for it. Like I really I really love the community we live in. I know it has a lot of work that needs to be done, but having those kind of interactions, I'm just like I don't like this place. This is cool. I get to talk with. You know, a mom and her kids about how cool dinosaurs are Aww. at Walgreens. <laughs>
0: That's
1: nice. Yeah. So, Kelly, what are you thankful for? Mm. You had my whole Walgreens story I know, to think about, but it. it's
0: been a shit week. It has. <laughs> I'm thankful. Oh shit! I remember what I was originally
1: thankful for. What was it? Damn it. Do, do you want me to share sure. so you can think yeah. of yourself? I know I
0: thought of it, but go okay, ahead.
1: Okay, okay. Um, so I got the opportunity to model again for this uh, small group of artists, which included uh, a professor that I've worked with several times in the yeah. past, who's awesome. And it was it was nice to model again because COVID really put the kibosh on that. And one of the artists that was there was like, "Wow, you, you like you did a good job. Thank you so much." I was like, "If you ever need me again, you know, like I'll do this. I do freelance." He's like. Oh, that's awesome. So I might get some more work out of it, which would be awesome. And just like more opportunities to do different kind of like modeling and that kind of thing. So that would that was a lot of fun. And uh, I also felt very validated because the professor that I've worked with, so him and the other artists were talking because they, yeah. you know, they 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 had been doing as, some still life. <laughs> yeah, you know, pe- people chat and they had been doing some still lifes and wanted to do a life drawing piece and one of the artists is like well I I know I know some people who might be willing to do it and the professor I've worked with was like no I know someone who has experience in this and is going to do a great job and that was the artist who talked to me later he's like yeah I, I knew some people who might be willing to do this and the professor was like no no I I have a person And the artist is like, I'm really glad we listened because you did a good job and you were receptive to the artist and like you chose a pose that was not only comfortable for you, but dynamic for the, like, yeah, he's like, there's a, there's a right way to do this. And there's a level of skill to it. I was like, oh, I feel like a professional. Yeah. It's like, even though I've been doing this for over 10 years, there's still that level of imposter syndrome. Like I just go there and like, just be still. (laughs) But that, that was nice, and it also made me fairly good that that professor was like, no, no, we're not just using some randos. I know someone who's going to do a good job. And I Aww. was like, ah. <laughs> that made me happy. Yeah, so I might get some freelance work and some more cash into my savings.
0: I mean, if they need anyone else for the clothed modeling.
1: I will let you know. I yeah. Let me
0: know, yeah. So, Kelly. What am I thankful for? I'm thankful for my friends and everyone. Everyone's been really nice. And, like, I we, our friends had to get together for, like, something unrelated yesterday. And, like, it was very nice that everyone was, like, you know, you could kind of tell that they were, like, if you want to talk about it, you can talk about it. But we're not going to, like. Showing that level of compassion and you. recognition. You know, like, everyone was, like, oh, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they weren't, like, you know, like. Tell me every detail of what happened. Yeah, you know, like eventually we we both ended up telling like people about it, but like, yeah, it it wasn't like they weren't like demanding it. It was like if you want to talk about it, and it happened when I was at work too. So like, thanks to Charlotte on that too. Like, you know, it was the if you start talking about it, I will listen and I'm Mm -hmm. here for you, but I'm not like you. Don't feel the need to have to tell me. Just
1: making themselves available. Like, whatever you need right now, I'm here to facilitate right. that. And yeah, that's like, huge. One of my
0: friends is like, how are you doing? I'm, like, the day after. And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm like, that's kind of my default setting right yeah. now is I don't know. And they're like, you know, that's okay. And it is okay to not be okay. And I'm like, I yeah. know. But thank you for telling me.
1: I love you. I love you too. Thank you. Mm.
0: On that note,
1: (laughs) thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at
0: WAHpod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com where you can get some classy merch. You can also donate for as little as $1 on Patreon and get some bonus content. Yes,
1: yeah, so by the time this episode's released, there should already be a question and answer portion bonus episode. I think we should talk like this all the time. Now. Oh, I'm no. getting me. Yeah. What happened there? Yeah, that, like, I can only be classy were, like, for posh so long. And then yeah. you just slid. I think we should talk this way all the time. Very mm-hmm. fancy, chicken Tea and crumpets. <laughs> Bonjour, mademoiselle. Bonjour, mademoiselle. <laughs> All right. Well, also raise five stars wherever you listen. And thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. And pride may be over. Pride month may be over. Pride never fucking ends. Never. Stay proud.
0: Bye. Bye.